Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another very special episode of Ignite Radio Live. So blessed that you are with us. You know, in seeking to understand this moment in salvation history, I do a good bit of listening to podcasts, reading books, having conversations. And what you're going to hear in the next hour, I would submit boldly that it is one of the most consequential, on-point, clear and compelling presentations of this moment in salvation history. It's at a Belief and Beverages Night that took place very recently featuring Jonathan Jakabowski following a brief presentation, a brief introduction by myself. Please join us third Thursdays for our Belief and Beverages Nights. You can find out more at massimpact.us forward slash BNB and certainly join this movement, the very core of it all, ilovemyfamily.us. I've never been to Rome. How many of you have ever been to Rome? Wonderful. Many of you. Um, apparently, there's a place called uh, the Colosseum where a lot of cultural debauchery took place in the name of entertainment. And apparently near the Colosseum is a place called a Basilica di San Clemente. Have any of you heard of the Basilica of St. Clement? Now, here's the imagery perhaps of tonight and why it's so consequential. So you have this place of cultural debauchery where there was disregard for the dignity of the human person. And institutions were complicit with this. And then you've got the Basilica di San Clemente, which is a basilica where Jesus Christ himself, we believe for 2,000 years, has gives himself body, blood, soul, and divinity the one time, the one sacrifice on the cross repeated that we participate in. Anyways, those who visit would see the impressive structure of the Colosseum, and they would see uh, San Clemente on the surface. Now, here's the thing. San Clemente is a church. You'd see the beauty of it outside above ground. But as they began to excavate, they discovered that while this was built in the 11th century, what you see above ground, you go below ground, that it stands on top of a basilica built in the 4th century. And you go a little further, they found very recently that it was built on top of a home of this Roman official, Clement is whom they believe it was. So the very first churches that were under persecution and more difficult times perhaps than we have today, where Christ was celebrated in homes, where are we tonight? We are in homes. And it is upon the home that all of civilization is built. Somebody once said to us, we have missionaries in our home. We're from Holland, Ohio, and we're blessed to host. We have six children, seven, I'll say one in heaven. We're blessed to host missionaries all the time. And one of the young missionaries had once said to us her commentary on what was taking place in the streets of America last year at this time. The Antifa, the violence, the things taking place throughout the country. She said, it's institutionalized fatherlessness. Institutionalized fatherlessness. Now, I didn't do a study, but I'm pretty confident that if I interview those who committed, who are complicit, if you will, with the violence and such, I bet you there's two things that I would bet 99% would fit into the category of coming from homes where they did not have a godly father or a godly culture. So our movement, in short, is called uh, Image Trinity. We exist. It is our nature, our unsurpassed identity 
is not Nike or Starbucks or whatever. It is sons and daughters of God in Jesus Christ. It's our unsurpassed identity. And so in a sense, husband and wife, Genesis 1.27, in his image, he made them male and female. Our, our movement is to rediscover our identity as men and women to live. We are icons of the Trinity. For a world that is starving to know their identity, to know what we are about, that is husband and wife. At the very core, that, that um, home, that uh, St. Clement, who became a, you know, a priest, who became a bishop, who became a pope, upon which civilization is built above. We here tonight, what we are about is restoring civilization, beginning in marriage and family. And that's what we are about. And I just leave you with uh, ilovemyfamily.us. I'll let these cards circulate. It's just a little handout card that we have. My brother, Jonathan Jakubowski. I'm going to read the description from one of his books. Uh, in a moment, but I think it's most important that um, as Ezekiel 37, we have dry bones, and I believe it's an image of the world around us, that we are a world of dry bones. And the bones are not inconsequential. We don't get rid of the bones. God commands Ezekiel, speak to the dry bones, prophesy to the dry bones. I feel that as a Catholic in particular, that it's not get rid of the cats, you know, arise. In fact, I'll give you this phrase. I think when Catholics rediscover their evangelical wings. And evangelicals rediscover their Catholic roots will be one church lifting this world to eternal life. That's my conviction about what I think God gives us. So my brother Jonathan, he's passionate and he's convicted and he's got a core that is about the kingdom. That's the word, the kingdom. Tonight is about the kingdom. It's the prayer we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Here's a man who is emboldened by Christ, who's accepted Jesus, and who asks the question, Lord, what do you desire of me as a husband, as a father, as a disciple of Jesus in this world? And I'd say that what ought to the glue of anything, I'd say that, that might animate made us tonight one simple insight, um, that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're not simply meant to pray it, but avail to being its answer. We're not simply meant to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God, do your thing, thanks. I'm going to go back to eating my Cheetos and drinking whatever. No, I'm availing myself to being an instrument of its answer. That's a transition that I think needs to happen to the church today. That when we pray, God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He can do the Saul thing. He can speak from on high. He can have an awesome theophany. Imagine, wouldn't that be awesome? He's got the power. Why doesn't he? It's a question I'll ask him when I go before him one day. But the only answer I have is he says, why do you persecute me, his church? We are the ones through whom he wants to manifest his kingdom. And this man is one who inspires me deeply to understand that more fully, to go after it, to live it, to avail myself to being an instrument of, his, of that answer. He's a godly husband. He's a business leader. He's a godly father of four. A little more specific. Jonathan Jakubowski is the director of SmartSolve, an award-winning startup business focused on sustainable packaging. Jonathan received his undergraduate degree from Bowling Green State University and master's degree in public policy from Georgetown University. Jonathan is an avid social entrepreneur, is the author of Bellwether Blues, the founder of Champions in Action, and is the chairman of the Forge Leadership Network Board of Directors. In 2017, Jonathan was unanimously selected as executive committee chairman of the Wood County Republican Party and sits on the Wood County Board of Elections. Jonathan, his wife Missy, and their four children currently reside in Bowling Green, Ohio. It is with great privilege and honor that I uh, invite you to join me in welcoming Jonathan 
to share with us tonight. I'll tell you what, I'm just going to be the ornaments on the tree. He could go. I could just listen the rest of the night. That was well worth the drive. First of all, I want to thank the Schleter family for this amazing invitation, and I appreciate it very much. I'm humbled and honored by it. Jesus said in John 13, as he was at the Last Supper, saying, this is what I've looked forward to, I've yearned for. He said, this is how they will know that you are mine, by how you love each other. And I think if there's a message that the church needs to hear today, I think that's the message. Do we love each other? I mean, do we really love each other? I would have to say the answer is probably no. I mean, not in the way that he intends it to be. Certainly there's examples across the world where you see brotherly and sisterly love, sacrificial love. But when I, I speak to the Bowling Green football team, and I, being a former football player, I can tell you that that was one of the environments where blood and flesh meet each other in an environment of heightened tension and pressure and there's this cataclysmic end of a win or a loss that defines everything when you're in that phase and in that pressure and in that tension and with all the external forces that coming, come upon you, you learn to love the person that's to your right and the person that's to your left. Regardless of where you come from, you could be from down south Texas, far California, Florida, black, white, Latino, Muslim, it doesn't matter. There is a brotherly love and a bond that's created that lasts a lifetime. So when I speak in those environments, and I'm speaking right before the game, you can cut through the tension with a knife. I understand what they're feeling as they sit there with their eyes ablaze with fire, getting to ready to go into battle. I think that's the urgency that we as the church are missing. We don't recognize the battle that we are in, and therefore we lose appreciation for the brother and sister that's on our left and our right. And in their moment of need and sacrifice, we care about what is ours and not what is theirs. If the message that I have to share with you tonight means anything, it is a call to you to be more sacrificial, more giving and more loving to your body, your body of Christ. We only have so much we can control. Those closest to us are the ones that we must influence most. I come tonight with usually the idea of preparing a script that's word by word. When I speak, I love to have it all written out, typed out and everything. But when I talked to Greg about speaking tonight to, to you guys, he wanted me to, to deliver a fresh message. To that extent, I took my hands off the wheel a little bit, and I'm not exactly sure what's coming. <laughs> I don't know what's going to come for me tonight. I just pray that what comes is under the direction and guidance and anointing of the Holy Spirit because I believe that he has a specific plan for each and every one of you that is strategic, that is unique, that is timely for this moment. I'm going to step into the framework of this message and then if something arises that deviates me, I ask your permission in advance and your forgiveness that we might get a little off topic. I hope that's okay. So there is this uh, most famous story, I guess, the, the comedic story, hey, how you doing, of the uh, 20th century. And it is about Sherlock Holmes and his famed friend, Dr. Watson. So Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson decided to go out one night and to camp out together. And after a little bit of a meal and some wine, they ended up going to sleep. And all of a sudden, sometime in the late hours of the night, Sherlock turns over and wakes his friend up, Watson. And he says, Watson, look up, look up. What do you see? And Watson, being the amazing and astute doctor that he is, says something like astronomically, I see all of these stars and there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that the Saturn is in Leo. 
Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are so small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Then Sherlock, in the only way he can, pauses for about 15 seconds. Says, Watson, you idiot, someone stole our tent. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we live in a moment that is much like that experience. The tent has been stolen and we don't even see it. In 1994, I was in Nairobi, Kenya. It was my first missionary journey of my life and it changed my life forever. It is when I would say I had the indwelling in the presence of the Holy Spirit for the first time in my life when I experienced and saw the poverty and yet some of the joy that came from the church. While that was happening, I had no clue whatsoever what was going on in the world in that era. But does anybody remember the nation of Rwanda in 1994 and what happened in Rwanda? Well, I was on my missionary journey for two weeks with a group of 12 other people from Northwest Ohio in the nation that bordered Kenya. One million Rwandans were slaughtered by their neighbors, slaughtered by their fellow congregants. The people that they worshiped with the week before were the people that were tearing them apart with machetes, raping and bludgeoning them. In many ways, I feel like while we're on our little missionary trips, and I don't mean to diminish the impact of those, I'm evidence of what can happen on a missionary missionary trip in a missionary journey. But if that's our full dependency and that's all that we can focus on, we're missing the broader context of what is happening today. And if anything, I think that our applications and our responses to this cultural moment represent the fact that we do not know what time it is. There's a scripture passage in 1 Chronicles 12, 1 Chronicles 12, 32. And it says, the sons of Issachar, they were the men who understood the times with the knowledge to know what Israel should do. We must be sons and daughters of Issachar. If we are not, we are in deep trouble. Russ Vogt, my friend, former director of the OMB, challenged an audience that he was speaking to, asking them if they knew what time it was. I think much like the 1994 moment in East Africa, in America, we're in a moment where we're up with carpenters trying to build the second floor while the foundation is on fire. We must know what time it is in order to respond appropriately with the gifts, the indwelling and the power of the Holy Spirit that he's giving to us to the cries of the fatherless that are in the streets of America, to the applications of evil made manifest in our lives, in our local communities, our schools, our neighborhoods? Do we have the courage to respond in this moment? I don't know if I have the answer to that. Secular society right now, we can just go down to the state of Texas. This, in my opinion, is one of the greatest evidences of the power of the pro-life movement. I think if there's a movement that knows what time it is, it's the pro-life movement. Going back to Roe v. Wade in the 1970s, when that movement was formed, it recognized, in spite of the fact that it was a minority, it never complained for being a minority. You'll hear me talk about this in a little bit, the the minority status. the, uh, The idea that it was small didn't affect those leaders that took bold steps to stand for truth in the public square, to pray at abortion clinics, to fight for life, to advance the the well-being and the nurturing of the mother and the family to advance the, the cause of the orphan and the widow. 
And because of that pro-life movement, what we saw in Texas was a major, major win. I know we have the director for Columbus Right to Life and one of the members of the boards of Ohio Right to Life. I think if there's a model to look at within the framework of conservatism and broadly speaking, or even from the, the standpoint of, of the church, I would say we ought to look at the pro-life movement. The gains that are happening are not because they ceded ground out of grace and nicety to the other, letting people pass by them. They stood their ground firm and resolute, never abandoning their post or the truth and never relinquishing, holding back the grace that God gave to them. They could love the abortion doctor that walked out of the clinic that just killed and murdered at his, with his bloody hands the babies that were in the womb while also praying and advocating and relentlessly fighting for the lives of those very children that were slaughtered. That is the best balance of truth and grace that I think I can come with in this moment. And I think that that movement gives me hope. It gives me hope because if that seed is planted and if we can have an effect in that movement, I think something can change in our nation that will shake the foundations. That's the foundational work that we have to be invested in without question. The abortion now with the issue of the federal government suing the state of Texas, the all out onslaught of Planned Parenthood and all the big donor dollars that are in the federal government, the president himself going out and arguing on behalf of the abortionists. That movement is, is strong and resolute and it doesn't matter. It's not about arguments anymore. It's not about what's right or what's wrong. They're not arguing from that standpoint. They're arguing from a, a framework that's differently entirely. We could talk about CRT and anti-racism. I have the book from Ibram X. Kendi here that I've been reading called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I'm sure you're all familiar with what's going on in our schools today all over the country. The movement that brought in, ushered in, anti-racism training on the foundation of critical race theory dating back to the 1970s, but it goes well back before that because you got a guy by the name of Karl Marx creating the foundations for what was gonna be revolutionary theory. And then these guys that followed that framed the Frankfurt School in Germany uh, who were engaged in building up critical theory with the idea that there's a hegemonic structure of power. And they looked to a number of Italian uh, anti-fascists who were communists who uh, built that, Antonio Gramsci's being one of them, who built that kind of this ideal of, uh, of writings around how you take that down. They, mo they mobilized critical theory. Critical theory is then brought into Harvard through Derrick Bell, and then critical, critical race theory is what is created in America. Critical race, critical race theory primarily set in the ivory institutions of America keeps its place until recent events happen, namely 2015 in Ferguson, when an anti-racist movement is created because you have to take theory and turn it into praxis. That's the only way you can change minds. We have a lot of stuff in universities and institutions across the country that are, are very wicked in their nature. These, this is anti-Dr. Martin Luther King. This is anti the civil rights movement. And what they did to bring it out, they needed race, race riots to get out into the public and into the K-12 system what they wanted to happen. So you have this battle now that's happening at school boards across the country with CRT and anti-racism. You have the battle going on with the LGBTQ advancement and the forced vocabulary of pronouns. If you don't state my pronoun, then you must be fired or relinquished from your office. These battle lines that have been drawn are tremendous. We have now at the, our border, we have porous borders. There's a lot of conversations. I work with a nonprofit ministry I founded called Champions in Action. It's in Guatemala City, Guatemala. We've worked with thousands of youth 
we see them come to Jesus Christ, we see them transformed through the power of mentorship, and we use soccer as a model to reach them. If there's anybody that understands this issue, I would say I'm one of those people, having been there over 100 times. Many of those youth are fatherless because their dads left them for the American dream to send back remittances only to find a new family and to leave them abandoned. My brother-in-law, that's his story, Jose Mendez. You have fathers leaving homes, you have broken families, and you have children now that must become adults. They get into the criminal net, transnational networks of crime, they become gang members, and next thing you know, they're the ones that die before the age of 18 years of age. We had a 3,000% increase in sex offenders crossing the border in the last five months alone because of our unwillingness at the federal level to follow through with the, with the mandate. The Romans 13 mandate is around what government should be about. No nation is a nation unless it has borders. There's a deep conversation we can have around that. I say all of that to say that in secular society, and there's many other examples that you all know and live out, the house is on fire. The foundation is on fire. We're living in a moment that, I'm sorry, as much as people want me to go back to the 1960s or go back to the Civil War, I agree. There's been times and eras where Americans have lived in situations of tremendous peril. This is a new moment. It's a new moment. It's a moment that I would say some would even argue is post-constitutional. We don't necessarily have the Constitution that can pull us back. That's a deeper debate that we won't have tonight. But there's arguments that we've gone that far that we have to find new ways of approaching the, the, what is the decayed moral framework of America. That we, ha we can't just focus on building institutions that will preserve freedom because if freedom is used as negative freedom, negative freedom meaning freedom from that libertarian ideal of freedom because of the kind of people that we have in this nation, that negative freedom will be used to absolutely destroy the institutions that will save us. Rather, we have to advocate for positive freedom, freedom for, freedom of duty, freedom of sacrifice, freedom of engaging our neighbors, advancing that which is good and beautiful and true. We have to have a holistic perspective on what our role is and why the laws that we're framing be from the sanctuary cities that need to rise up in every city, the advancement of the pro-life ethic, using the foundations of protection that we have to advance those things that are necessary to preserve us long enough for the hope that there would be an awakening in this nation. Pay close attention to that word awakening. We'll circle back to it in a little bit. What time is it? Do we know what time it is? Body Balcom, another book. I reference a lot of books. So tonight I just brought a bunch of them with me. So it makes it easy for you guys. One book that I, I reference, if you have not yet picked it up, is Vadi Balcom's book called Fault Lines. All right, Fault Lines is a tremendous read and it gives you back to that CRM anti-racism, or CRT anti-racism conversation. He breaks down what's happening in the church. And he makes the argument that this, the, all these battles that are happening externally, there's a fault line that has now occurred in the church. And this fault line separates those churches that are going to remain true to the doctrines of Scripture. They're going to have the courage and the power and the conviction, no matter what the cost, no matter how much they must pay, they're going to stay true to those things and they're going to fight for life. They're going to stand for the family. They're not going to kowtow to the political movements of the day to sound like they're appeasing those people that surround them. They're not going to care about the tithe dollars. They're going to focus on the mission and message of Jesus Christ and the gospel in an unfiltered and unadulterated way. He says on the other side of that fault line are all the churches that are doing exactly the opposite of that. Churches that have adopted a message that is secular in nature, whether it's a postmodern message or a message of social justice. And that social justice message, which is not biblical justice, there is biblical justice and then there's social justice. Those are two different frameworks. The social justice message, which moves them like a train that comes in with the engine on the tracks being that of anti-racism, ending with the train of being all in on the sexual ideology that dilutes the message of family 
that the church so must stand for and, and be with. That fault line that exists demonstrates that we have a church that is now waging war against itself. These guys cause these, these guys biggest. These guys must stand and fight and hold on to everything they have. We must love them, but we must speak to them with truth and honesty. What did Paul do in 1 Corinthians when they found an individual in the church who was unwilling to stand true to the sexual ethic? He was excommunicated from the church after the process from Matthew 18 was followed. In a similar manner, we must stand firm in the truth and pray for our brothers and sisters who have abandoned their posts where they rightfully need to be. If we love each other enough, if we're so attractive because of our love for each other, people will desperately want to be a part of the body of Christ. But I'm afraid we've lost that attraction. The honey that's supposed to come from the comb is bitter because we're fighting amongst ourselves. We are unwilling, those of us that stand true in our lanes, we're worried about the little things, the, the, the things that should not separate us, whether the color of the carpet or the chandeliers in the room or the music that's played. We're so focused on those battles that all of our guns are pointed at each other as opposed to going out with the message, message and mission of the gospel. I think there's an undercurrent to this broader movement that's happening, not just in secular society, but as I mentioned in the church. And the undercurrent comes from a worldview that we're all a part of. I want to make a simple comparison tonight, that comparison of a first century disciple of Jesus and a 21st century disciple of Jesus. And there's two different frameworks that we've all been born into. What you're born into, we cannot control. We cannot control the times that surround us. How we respond to the times is how we are to, how we are to engage. The first century disciple, uh, disciple from the Hebrew word uh, is called Talmid. The Talmid or the Talmidim were the disciples of Jesus. By the way, a quick side, Taliban, Talib, Talib, disciple. Talib is disciple of the Quran and the prophet Muhammad. They are disciples. Look at their model. They were in the mountains fighting a battle that they never thought, that no one thought that they could ever win. In the mountains of Afghanistan, hiding and surviving and living off limited food. I have very friends that are engaged in warfare at the highest levels of our nation. And the battles that they fought, these guys had, did not have the weapons, they didn't have the physical strength, they did not have any of the sophisticated information or technology that was necessary to win on a battle of war, and yet they had one thing, one thing that gave them the power of persistence, and that was a vision, a vision to stay. They were disciples of the way. Now that way we know is false, that's the way of Muhammad, not the way of Jesus. The Talmud of Jesus in the first century, we talked about a couple of examples earlier, Greg did, the disciple of Jesus was willing to lay down his or her life for the sake of the gospel. I think of Peter, crucified upside down. I think of James, thrown off the temple tower, 300 feet in the air, and then his head was chopped off by Gentiles because he didn't die. He was still proclaiming the message of Jesus. I think of Philip, who was tortured. He was mutilated, and then his life was taken in, in what is modern-day India. I think of all the examples of the martyrs throughout human history. These people never once compromised on the truth. They stood in a culture that was warring with flames and fire and the threats of war and rumors of war and lions and coliseums. And yet there they stood bold and courageous because the message of the gospel burned inside of their bones in such a way that they could not help but stand for that which was good and beautiful and true. Because of them, the church exists. The church exploded. And it is what it is today. They did have an advantage. They had a disadvantage to the extent they were living in this terrible culture, but they had an advantage. And that advantage, advantage is what I will call a mimesis, a mimetic worldview, a mimetic frame of reference. See, back in that day, if you look at a first century farmer, for example, a mimetic worldview, this comes from The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, another book recommendation, I brought it with me. There you go. Like I said, I talk about all these. 
Uh, this is an amazing book. I reference it out. You'll hear it maybe a couple of times a night. We'll see Carl Truman, a professor at Grove City, a pastor, really, I think, encapsulates what is this cultural moment. He gets the perfect synthesis for helping us understand how we got to where we are today. And he talks about this. This is a kind of a, a Greco philosophy, Greco-Roman philosophy of mimesis. I think it's a Greek word. And mimesis is the idea that um, I am defined, my identity is defined from outside in. All right, so the institutions of society that exist around me. If I'm the farmer, I depend upon the rain. I depend upon the supply chain. I depend upon the, the guys that are in my cadre of other farmers, those people that surround me in the community to get the crops out. I depend upon all these things. And if one of those things breaks down, my family and I are going to starve. I depend upon the church. If I'm feeling depressed or abject, and depression probably wasn't even a thing they could talk about. If I'm feeling abject and out of touch and trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do, I gotta go to the pastor or priest that's around me in order to understand what it is that I'm supposed to be doing in life. What is my broader purpose for life? I go to the government, the governing officials to help me understand exactly the way that I am to have conduct and, and civil nature and civil engagement. Obviously, there's many cases where all of these institutions absolutely deteriorated and did not, they, uh, they abrogated their God-given mission, right? We know that. But nonetheless, the dependency of the individual was outside in, the family. What was your purpose in life? Do you find fulfillment in your job as a farmer? What a crazy question. Do I put food on the table for my family? That's my job, that's my duty. That's how I find fulfillment. An outside-in worldview, an identity that's driven from that perspective. Right? The first century disciple of Jesus knew that for them to live a fulfilled life, it depended upon their engagement and interactivity with the body of Christ. The love that the body of Christ shared in the first century was a love that I, I don't think we've replicated since. But that's the love that we must redeem if we are to see this nation change, if we are to see this world change. It is a love that must be awakened within the body. The 21st century disciple lives from what's called a poesis worldview. Poesia, poesis worldview. The poesis worldview is one that is inside out. And we all can relate to this. If, I'm, if someone wants to talk to you about how you're doing and you like your career, that's what we're gonna ask you. How do you find fulfillment in your job? That question makes logical sense to us. It's asked to us all the time because now the question is not about what you're doing to serve the institution. The question is about what is that institution doing to serve your desire and your purpose? You find fulfillment in your marriage. You find fulfillment with your kids and in your, in your parenting. Do you find fulfillment in the things that you do? And it's very much a question about, am I finding from these things that exist what I most desire with my happiness? It is certainly a freedom from mentality. And the reason why it's dangerous is because when we think of the world from that framework, we are not as the disciples of Jesus outside in looking. We are inside out. Everything exists to serve me. But what was Jesus' greatest calling? He said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The disciple of Jesus in the 21st century arguably has it much harder has it much more difficult because we have a culture that surrounds us telling us all the time that you define your reality. What you wanna be is who you will become. You need to find what you enjoy. You need to find what you love to do. That's what you ought to be doing. And they applicate all the depression. We have the highest rates of depression in the history of measuring depression amongst Gen Z and millennials. I think every generation is probably included in that, but certainly I saw a study recently that shows that. Why are they so depressed when they have so much fulfillment? We have everything that surrounds us, and yet depression has been the onset. It's because we're being told that the only way that we can be satisfied is by fulfilling the desires of our flesh. And we know that that monster never stops. The more that you feed it, the more it wants more, and the more it wants more, the more it destroys our soul. 
But what profits it a man to gain the whole world, but lose his soul? We will lose our soul if we live from the worldview of the poetic, poesis perspective. We must transform our perspective to that of Jesus Christ, Romans 12, says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We must be transformed and we must understand that our purpose is tied to the purpose of the great I am and his calling on our life is to engage those who surround us, our community, our family, our church, a subsidiarity framework where we're sacrificing for the greater good of others, even if it means that it doesn't help me, but it's for the purposes of the kingdom. That is the call of this day and this age. And I'm not preaching to you, I'm with you. I'm with you because I need to hear it as much as you need to hear it. Speaking candidly to the church, this is Soren Kierkegaard, he said, without earnestness, we have no essential reality. Without earnestness, we have no essential reality. Are we aflame with the fire of the Holy Spirit? Or are we apathetically sitting back thinking good things will happen if we just attend a Bible study, have a conversation, fulfill whatever the mandate is of the day? I think that this moment that we live in must take us to the feet of Jesus every morning, asking for the indwelling power of the Spirit of God to mobilize us and move us in such a way so that when we're out, when we're speaking, it's not us who's attractive, we're lighting ourselves on fire and the world wants to come see us burn so that it would know that fire that lights us. And as we love each other, as we spend time together and that fire grows and grows, it's gonna attract people to us. They may hate us, but they're going to see something different about us. And that difference is what's gonna drive them to their knees. What do, this sounds like the start of a bad joke, I transition really awkwardly sometimes, but what do communists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses, if that's plural, and Mormons have in common? So here's a third book recommendation, a fourth maybe tonight that I have for you guys. This is a book I especially brought for my Catholic friends from Douglas Hyde, a former communist turned Catholic. It's a blueprint for how to form small scale models of activism that creates transformation. Now in this book, it's a, I think it's a message, it's a lecture series to Notre Dame, at Notre Dame, and he's not telling them about the ills of communism, believe it or not. He's telling them about the virtues that communism brought about. He's an ex-communist, so how can he talk about the virtues of communism? Well, he left communism because obviously the ideology is evil. I just, I write a, a column in Newsmax Monthly and last month's column was communism. At its best, it's still the worst. It's the deadliest ideology in human history. There's no question about it. That doesn't mean that we can't learn from it, and this is what Douglas Hyde points out. He says that what the communists have been able to do is they've recognized first and foremost, I told you about this minority complex, they do not have a minority complex. They have represented for a long time very small populations of people with much larger populations. Well, he's talking to Catholics, he said, you, now us, as he's speaking as a fellow Catholic, we have all of these people. We represent, in some cases, almost a majority in certain nations of believers, and yet we all feel like we are losing our power. We feel like we're, we're lamenting all the time because we're losing our influence in society. We don't have enough people, everybody's leaving us. He said the communists never had that mentality, never. They believed that their minority size was an advantage. It was an advantage and it was a force multiplier. Why? Because they knew that there would be cultural moments that would bring chaos and devastation, and people would be looking for an answer, but not to the prevailing line of thought in society, but to the minority that had answers not yet tried. 
So the minority complex did not exist within communists. They saw it as an advantage and used it to their advantage and then mobilized those minority of leaders to get the message out. And that led to the spread of communism in an unprecedented fashion throughout the course of the 20th century. Regardless of how deadly the ideology was, they had committed and willing and passionate evangelists. That leads me to the second point. And this is where you'll see the commonality between the three that I just mentioned earlier. The second thing they would do is from the moment a communist or a desiring communist, a candidate came in, usually younger, between 17 and 25, they saw the, the, the ideological hope, the, the hope and vision for change in the world as something that was great about youth. Too often he remarks in the church, we look down upon youth because their vision is too big for us and will never happen. And in our looking down upon them, in our critique of them, we lose the rec recognition that God has created young people to fight battles for which they must have hope, for which they must have vision. We speak down to them and we try to prevent them from doing something. Well, guess what? They're going to look somewhere else as somebody that will accept them for their hope and vision for what can be changed through their lives. And he speak, he's speaking to the, these Catholics at this lecture series and he says when a, a candidate comes in that we've recruited, the first job that candidate would have, we don't even teach him. We don't even teach him about communism. We don't bring him in and talk about all the, the philosophers. We don't talk about Marx and Lenin. We don't talk about all the, the foundations of, of the principles for where you get to big government and the bourgeoisie versus the, we don't talk about that. What we do is we send them out on the streets with newspapers and their first job is to sell communist newspapers. And they do it for weeks. And as they do it for weeks, they get spit on, they get people that reject them. They're a minority, this is in the UK specifically, we said it happens all over the world. They get flatly rejected, some are sent to prison. They experience a little bit of persecution. And that persecution creates within them the ability to form a resistance when the heat of the battle is created. Once they've tasted that resistance, once they've, once they've seen what they view as the enemy, they now have a yearning desire and an instinctive desire to step into the battle. Jehovah's Witnesses, what do they do? They go out and they sell the Watchtower tracks. They go door to door. The first people that come in, their job is to go door to door to talk about what their faith is. What do the Mormons do? Two-year missionary journeys, mandated for every single Mormon that joins the faith. I'm sorry, but on our side, if you would, of the denominational line, the broadly speaking church, the scripture of God, we do not have those messages. We do not have those mandates. We do not have those requirements. Our message is come and have fun and life will be great and grand. Your best life now. You're going to come in and just live a beautiful, wonderful life. And then when something comes in that hits us and cuts us off at our knees, I'm wearing this bracelet. This is my niece, uh, Gracie Barnes. She's at uh, nation, Nationwide. She has cancer at the age of three. She had a deadly form of cancer, um, identified just in time, was life lighted. They did immediate surgery. She had a five centimeter by five centimeter um, tumor inside of her brain. They took it out. All the MRIs demonstrate by the grace of God that there is no, grace, uh, no cancer remaining. And now she's going through chemo. And she's been through four weeks of chemo. And I wear this, it's called Miracle Gracie as I pray for her. And another child at the age of three named Sutton, who's in Bowling Green getting treated in Ann Arbor, who also has this cancer. Um, when you get cut off at the legs of life, when sin comes, when tragedy hits, when the sorrows of life nail us, and the only thing you've built your faith upon is a message of your best life now, that foundation is going to crack. It's going to fall. The house is going to decay, and you will look elsewhere for the answers that you must have in those moments of desperation. The message of the gospel must be spoken true. Yes, it is the most adventurous, the most daring, the most engaging thing you can do, the calling of life. You will never be the same, but you must bear your cross 
every single day. You must crucify your cross to the to your flesh to the cross. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ lives in me. That is hard. It's waking up in the morning, it's praying, it's seeking God's face, it's asking him for inspiration, it's asking him for vision. When somebody has a need, it's me not sinking into myself and focusing on what I have or the priorities of my day. It's going out and it's reaching that lost person. It's caring for somebody who I may dislike because of what they wore or their ideology or what have you, but they're in the body of Christ and I'm to reach them, I'm to love them. It's loving the unlovable. It's serving the unservable. It's doing the unthinkable. The message of the gospel is a hard message. Narrow is the road that leads to life. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is that road. Thankfully, by the grace of God, his yoke and burden are easy and light. Only because he carries those burdens for us. But those burdens are hard burdens. We can't compromise or dilute the true message of the gospel. In fact, the youth of our day are destined for an adventure. They are destined for warfare. God made them with a hole in their heart that only he can fill for an adventure that will require the sacrifice of their lives. They're finding all the answers in all the wrong places. And it's only going to lead to their destitution and their destruction and their decay. We have the right answer, but we are now representing what is a minority. Now for the first time in, in American history, the population of Gen Zers and millennials are less than half of those that believe in God and attend church. For the first time, we are in the minority. Let's flip the script and recognize that being in the minority is not a disadvantage. What we have has not yet been revealed, and what we have is the truth and hope and light of the world. If we deliver that message, it will change their lives. Never underestimate the power of your testimony. I don't care who it is, who you've been with. You might think you have a bridge that's been broken. You might think you have a, a son or a daughter that's not going to listen to you or a grandchild that you just can't shake. A neighbor friend that has gone so far left, they're a part of Antifa and they're raging on the streets. You have inside of you the answer that this universe desperately needs in this moment. God is calling you to get out of your seat and step into their lives. And when you deliver that message of hope and truth and love, they might not receive it at the moment, but there will come a time in their life, years down the road, maybe months, maybe hours even, when they hear that voice of the Holy Spirit reminding them of the message that you gave to them, reminding them of the love that you demonstrated, the fact that you were willing to stand for truth in the moment when it was most necessary. And when that voice arises in their heart, it will change them from the inside out. They will be transformed and you will see the fruit of your faithfulness because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Brethren, you are the laborers. You are the laborers. As I said at the Schleter house a few months ago when we presented, you know the parable of the stewards, right? Where there's, a, there's three stewards. The king gives one steward five talents, another one two talents, another one one talent. And I often talk to people about this. It's easy to be critical of the one talent steward, but in many ways we are the one talent steward. He's talking to a lot of us. When he asks them to invest those talents, and those talents represented tremendous amounts of revenue, millions and millions of dollars. If you read the context around that parable, what you'll see is it says that the people of the city hated the king. They hated him. They despised him. And yet the king's leaving and he's asking his servants, the stewards, to go out and invest these talents. But they got to do it in a terrible environment. I think in a similar way. We're in a terrible environment by all the standards and measures that you can use to define that. Very different from what it used to be, all the stuff we talked about knowing what time it is. And yet God has given you a specific talent and a calling. 
sometimes multiple talents and multiple callings, assignments for this day and age. You must not refrain from investing those talents or like the one talent steward who said, because of the fear and the environment that surrounds me, I'm gonna hide this talent and put it away so that I do not lose the talent. God gives you a talent to multiply it, not to hide it. We must multiply, multiply and invest. Go out to the harvest because it's plentiful. Do not have the minority complex. As my friend here who I've never met, Douglas Hyde states in his book. So I talked about awakening versus revival. And I'm going to kind of transition in that direction a little bit as I talk about what, what does America look like and is it possible to bring it back from the brink of destruction and chaos? Well, I think the reason why we do not want a revival, and that might sound like anathema to those of us in here who are praying for a revival. The reason that I don't think we want a revival is because to me it reminds me of like a flood. You hear songs and prayers maybe talking about floods, but what happens with floods? They come in one time and they knock stuff out of the way and the rocks that are in the way might be tossed, but the rocks still maintain their hard and large shape. So it creates a path, but it devastates the environment and it's gone. It's in and it's gone and the environment grows back to what it was before. I think that's what a revival looks like. What I think is prescribed for the time in which we are living is something that is much more difficult than a revival. A revival looks like a stadium filled with a guy like Billy Graham preaching and thousands coming to know Jesus. It looks a lot like kind of that Acts 2 scenario. It's just a comparison in terms of when that message was delivered, it was being delivered to a majority of people, the brethren who understand the scriptures and could get the prophecies that were being made in Isaiah 53 and Joel and Hosea, understanding that when that message is being preached, oh, it makes sense through the message of Peter. What he's saying is what makes sense to us because the prophecies are fulfilled by this guy that just rose from the grave. That makes sense in 1960 in stadiums in Dallas and California where people come to Christ, revivals hit. They could step into that framework where there was an understanding of positive freedom and negative freedom. Today we live in an entirely different context. We live in an Acts 16 context. And this is why I say awakening. An awakening to me looks more like a steady brook or a stream. It comes from a mountain and it starts to create a path. And that path at first isn't gonna do much. It's gonna start running over the same trajectory of land and that land won't take shape for a long time. But the longer that that stream runs, the longer it goes, the more it stays with its steady flow. Those big rocks that were in the way of the flood that were moved out of the pathway, now with the brook that has been running over them for a decade, what happens to those big stones? They get winnowed down and winnowed down and winnowed down and winnowed down to the point when they become smooth, small stones that can go into the sling of the David that's gonna take down the giant. An awakening is a movement that is continual. It's permanent, it's resident, it doesn't change, it doesn't shift, it doesn't allow the scariness of, the scariness of what surrounds it, the fear that surrounds it from changing its trajectory. It continues running over the pathway knowing that the water that it carries is life. And the water that it carries in its life-giving form will change the landscape that stands in front of it. In America, we need an awakening. But to have an awakening, we must have permanence. We must have commitment. We must have perseverance. We must have love for the brethren that has staying power. People that are willing to invest in their communities. People that don't worry about what's happening in the bigger picture because I can't control it. But in my neighborhood, in my family, in my schools, I can be invested and I can lay my life down for the calling of the gospel that people around me might come to know the truth that it would set them free. One thing I would say is this, 
as we talk a little bit more towards government and move in that direction, Benjamin Rush, anybody know who Benjamin Rush is? Signer of the Declaration of Independence, the father of American education. Benjamin Rush said that in schools, we ought to teach in this order, God, government, family. For a guy that's speaking tonight who believes wholeheartedly in the mission of not compromising my soul, I believe family ought to be much more important than government, right? That's what it seems like. So why would Benjamin Rush tell us that order of teaching? Well, Benjamin Rush understood something that I think we must grasp tonight as we consider the awakening that God is calling us to be invested in. He understood that first you must have a worldview that allows us to recognize the inalienable rights that come from heaven. No parliament, no president, no king, no power can take away rights that are God-given. God is greater than government. And right makes might. That's what, when government is defined in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, that they have been endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That to secure these rights, first comes rights, then comes government. The reason why Rush made it in that order is he recognized that government gone bad destroys the ability to form the nuclear family. Government gone bad looks like North Korea, where they literally tear out of the mother's wombs the babies in flesh. They take the fathers and mothers and separate them. They force upon them rape and murder. In China, with one child and now two child policies, manipulation from government that seeks to destroy the ability of a family to live together as a cohesive unit. Government gone wrong is government that destroys our ability to live lives that are peaceable, full of joy and hope, representing what Greg spoke about earlier, the idea of the Trinity being reflected in the unity of the community of the family. Because the unity of the community of the Trinity is that first model. We represent that. But government gone bad destroys that. It doesn't mean the family's been unfaithful. The family's been tremendously faithful. The husband and the wife have done what they're doing. They do everything in their power to raise a family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But government gone wrong destroys that family. And that's why when I hear of fellow Christians praying for the persecution of America, I tell them, I challenge them, I disagree firmly. I disagree vehemently with that prayer. We do not need persecution in America. Persecution God will use. Blessed are the persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We know that God uses persecution. He takes that which evil and turns it into good. But why would you pray for evil for somebody that you love? If you really love the body of Christ, why would you pray for peril and famine and rape and sword? Why would you pray for those things against your brethren? I firmly disagree with that. No, what you need to pray for is being poor in spirit. You need to pray that the body of Christ would awaken to the recognition that we without Christ are nothing. And that our, our gains in this world, our materialism and all the things that surround us, all that is meaningless. But we can, like the King David, we can go to our knees recognizing that I can dance naked before the throne of God because I am nothing without him. You don't have to have persecution to do that. What persecution does is it destroys the unit that is supposed to be life-giving and foundation-building for the citizenry and the, if you would, nation-building concept. The reason why America has done what it has done, notwithstanding the many evils, that America has endured. We have made many, many grave mistakes. However, one of the things that has allowed America to endure is in many ways the family has been the exact opposite. It's the counter narrative to what you see in nations like France. And there's a comparison I like to make tonight as I talk about an awakening. The nation of France in the 18th century, you're kind of riding with me on this journey. I hope I still got you. I'll try to keep you awake. Uh, the nation of France in the 18th century was in peril. 
they had decided that, in fact, the Jacobins said this, they said, when the last priest is strangled by the guts of the last king, only then will we have freedom. They wanted to remove the monarchy and they wanted to remove the church and they wanted to have maximum freedom. So they, they envisioned this society without God that ele elevated the intellect of man, but in the process of their debauchery, families were broken down, civil society was taken, hundreds of thousands of lives, innocent lives, devastated in 18 revolutions. It was a nation that went astray and a nation that still suffers the consequences today of the antecedents of guys like Jean-Jacques Rousseau who seeded it within them thoughts of peril, evil, and famine, the elevation of the intellect of man, abandoning, excuse me, abandoning the word of God and the foundation of truth. Well, England was in a very similar position. It's estimated at this time in the 1700s that 20% of single women in London were prostitutes. I actually think that we're not too far. I heard a statistic recently in America that some of these apps that we have out here, Tinder and others, the one where women can like sell, I don't know what it's called, but they, you can sell photos of yourself. Something like 5% of Gen Zers between 16 and 18, I, I, might, I don't have the statistic right, so we'd have to find it somewhere else, but something like 5% are engaged in selling their bodies. And, and this is, these are incredible statistics. Like the numbers are rising every single day. Again, the foundation of our nation is on fire. We have to know what time it is. Well, England was in a similar state you had families sleeping together, you had corruption at the highest levels of government, you had women being sold, debauchery at every possible level you can imagine. And the question is, is why did England not have 18 subsequent revolutions? Why did England still have a monarchy after they were on the same exact path and trajectory? Well, it gives me hope because the story of the awakening, the first great awakening that arose in England is the same great awakening that can arise in America if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and fast and repent and turn from the wicked ways and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14 is the mandate of today and it was the mandate of England in the, in the 18th century. And guys like John Wesley and guys like George Whitfield, they would take the Bibles from the pulpits and they would tear them off the chains and they would go to the fields where there were coal miners coming out of the coal mines and by the tens of thousands, and they would open the word of God and out would come these tens of thousands, their faces black with soot. And as they would preach the very words that we're preaching tonight about Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave. He is now the only way to heaven. Through him, you can have salvation. You can be liberated from the chains of bondage and slavery by having access to salvation through him. That is your life. As this message, this message resonated within the thousands, they said they knew that the awakening had hit England when the tears from the faces of these coal miners turned their faces that were black with soot white as snow. In a similar way, we must take the Bible from the pulpit. We must take the Bible from our cell phone and we must unleash it into society, into the hearts of those that we know, into our sons and grandsons and our nieces and nephews and our colleagues and our cousins. Those that surround us, our brothers and our sisters, they need you to share with them the hope that lies within you. Well, as this movement took shape in England, it was a permanent movement. A guy by the name of William Wilberforce recognized the Benjamin Rust message of God, government, family, and he knew that England was destined on a path that would lead it to destruction. But it was William Wilberforce who created what was called the, the, I think it's called the Clapham Circle. Something like we have here tonight, people with different skills in different arenas and in different industries, and he brought them together and he lit them on fire with the message of the gospel. 
And then these people took their assignments with the different skills and callings, the talents that God had given to them, and they deployed them all throughout society. And before long, England began to change its heart. The rise of the Victorian era became a thing where modesty and virtue, those things that are good and beautiful and true, became vogue in culture. Slavery was abolished. The elevation of the poor, the elevation of the family, shaped the entire nation. And before long, you had a citizenry that was the exact opposite of France. In America, we need an awakening. We need people to recognize that the message that we carry is one that is life-transforming. I'm sure we'll get to more questions about specifically maybe the application to government, maybe not. I'm open to any question tonight. But I believe that one of the talents that I have and one of the things that I see in, in this moment as we go about all the challenges that we just talked about, I mean, tonight as I'm speaking, there was an executive order that went, went out from Biden's desk that is mandating vaccines for businesses that are 100, 100 employees or more, mandating vaccines or testing that is that is unconstitutional. There's nothing in the Constitution that gives the federal government the right to make this statement. No executive power, no judicial power, no executive or legislative power has that authority. I think it's going to be held back because of uh, district judges. I'm highly expecting that. But I, I, I say that to say we are living in a moment in time where the, the weapons and tools, if you would, that we've used to engage government must be different. And let me use a quick analogy for you. That the reason why people, when they talk to me, they, they get frustrated because like, well, where is compromise today? And why can't we be like it was in the olden days when it seemed like we were able to find a middle ground? Why, why are we not finding a middle ground? Why is there a fault line? What I'll say is, I'll, I'll look at it this way. Government used to be, as it's enumerated in the Constitution, has a specific set of powers that are mandated from Article 1 through Article 7 with 27 amendments. And it, it had this lane. Now, the, the lane, as we know, over time kept growing. I mean, has government shrunk ever since 1787? <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it's only grown and it hasn't really gone back. And obviously, we have a federal, state, and local government level. It's another story. But government largely has grown. But it had this lane that was designed for it. And then Edmund Burke, who was an influencer of his day, he was against the French Revolution. He was for the American Revolution. There were some things he understood about society and why these societies were different. He made the argument that we should fight for the platoons of society, things like family and business and church. These things matter. And speaking from the conservative framework, maybe everyone in here is not conservative. I don't know, but you're conservative. You understand this. You, want, you, are, you think the government matters so little, and I agree with you. It, it should not matter that much. There are things far more important than government. And those things that I just mentioned are at the very top. And he said that we should focus on these things and keep government in its rightful place. The problem ha that we have is the compromises that were being made, the middle ground, if you would, was in this section over here. So compromising on an issue looks like this, right? Whereas you still have all our institutions out here doing what they're supposed to be doing having the freedom to live out the positive freedom that we're called to. What has happened, however, over the last 240 years is this is where government has ended. We're now here to here instead of here to here. So when you talk about compromises, they're making compromises on public policy. The compromise means the devastation of the civil institutions that were once outside of government's realm. That's why we must fight with everything we have to defend those institutions, to stand for what is right and good and beautiful and true, to be bold and courageous, to use our voices for that which is right, to not kowtow to what society has to say, to recognize the enemies of truth for who they are, but to do so in a way that only Jesus can teach us how, to do so full of truth, unwavering truth, courageous truth, standing in the face of the protester who's spitting on you. 
I've had these experiences. Standing in the face of the person that threatens you, that threatens to take your and tear your family down, that threatens to burn your house down. Standing in their face and not stopping and compromising from that which is right and that which is your calling. And in the same breath, having the grace that only Jesus can give us to love them unconditionally. And say, even though you hate me with everything you have, I am fighting against the sin inside of you and the enemy that wants to manipulate you, but I will fight for you as a human being because Jesus loves you and he laid down his life for you. And if we as a church can bring that formula into our bodies, if we can love each other and become attractive, those that are out there that are living lies, living by the ideologies of this world who fall short of the mandate of the gospel, they will come running to the throne room of grace in times of need because we will have the answer. I'm going to pray for you tonight and then we'll open up some Q&A. That's where God led me tonight. I hope it spoke to your hearts. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here in Dublin, Ohio. I thank you so much for this household, the household of the Shalitas. I thank you for their faithfulness in serving you, their love for you. I think that these people who are connected to their community love them and they reciprocate that love and that that connection has meant a difference in lives. God, I pray for every couple, every individual that's in this room, every leader that's in this room. God, I pray for those tonight who may feel as if there's an experience in their life right now that's causing them fear. They recognize that they're on the precipice of a decision and if they make a decision of courage to do something that is right, that that's going to cost them something. God, I pray tonight that you would give them the courage to stand for that which is right and that which is true. That they would not try to find a way to, to filter that or to compromise on that, but I pray that they would find a right, uh, the courage that's necessary from your spirit to stand for that which is right and that which is true. I pray that the weapon that the enemy is trying to use to silence them and to move them from the talent and the assignment that you've given to them, that his voice would be disquieted in their souls and that your voice would rise. And I pray, God, that they would stand unwavering, that they would stand firm, knowing that your spirit, which activated, is, is activated inside of them, will lead them to the purpose that you have for their lives. And that as a result of their testimony, that somebody that's out there that needs to see their example can hear from them and know that you are working within their lives for their salvation. So I pray right now, Lord, for courage. For this group, I ask that you would fill these people with courage like Joshua, that they would be strong and courageous to take steps into the land and not to hold back. I pray that the courage would fill them right now. God, I pray that you would bless them, that you would bless them with your spirit, and that as they realize the passion of the fire of the gospel that they are to live with, God, that they would every day be charged by your spirit in ways that only you can fulfill and only you can satisfy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You were just listening to a very special episode of Ignite Radio Live. For this episode and other great episodes, go to igniteradiolive.com. And we warmly invite you to join us at our Belief in Beverages Night, the third Thursday of every month. Find out more at massimpact.us forward slash BNB. And as always, we warmly welcome your partnership and engagement in building the civilization of love at ilovemyfamily.us. God bless you.